Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. Here we are in our second episode for January 2021. Forest of Noise will resume eventually, uh, but I'm not sure of the exact start date for the resumption of that show. But stay tuned. I'm sure if you're subscribing, you'll catch sight of that. The two books featured in the reading soon, uh, The Corpse Washer and Stamp from the Beginning, I have not finished in time for the recording of this episode. Corpse Washer is almost done, so it will definitely be in next week's episode. Next episode, sorry. Uh, so far as Stamp from the Beginning, I'm not sure. We'll see how long that one goes. And there are so many books in my to-read pile. And so we'll definitely be reading a lot more from home this year, so there will be fewer recent publications as we journey through things I've been meaning to read, sometimes for years. So that will mean a year of longer books. So a good bit of military history, continuing the Outlander series, starting Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive series, and I plan to also try The Kingkiller Chronicles by Patrick Rothfuss. I have the first three books in that series, but if the fir- I don't like the first one, of course, I won't continue. But as we know in this show, if that's the case, we won't hear too much about if I don't like if uh, I don't learn something from it or like it. Our first book this episode is Welcome to the New World by Jake Halpern and Michael Sloan. Jake Halpern is a white American journalist and author, and Michael Sloan is a white American illustrator and editorial cartoonist. This book was originally published in the New York Times uh, as comic strips or and was awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 2018 for editorial cartooning. Uh, I found it as a new ebook through my local library, and Welcome to the New World is focused on Ibrahim Aldaban and his family after he uh, Ibrahim escaped from a Syrian prison and his family fled the country, uh, settling as refugees while they worked on work gaining entry to America. And they arrived on Election Day 2016. So the graphic novel shares this family's journey from Syria during the Civil War to their resettlement in Connecticut. So like many books we we come across, this helps us provide a first, uh, a primary source, to put it in my professional terms, or that firsthand experience of a family dealing with the struggles both in Syria uh, as the government and services break down as the fighting reaches where the Aldabans lived. Uh, And while their arrival was not the absolute worst time for Syrian refugees to arrive in America, it was definitely not the best. Uh, Throughout the work, we see the struggle of moving to a new society, particularly one that is often hostile to those who do not look like most the, the majority or what is perceived as the majority. So we see the Aldaban struggling with the gender norms within the United States, the role of the family, trying to maintain their family traditions and togetherness, 
while also struggling to find a job to match what they lost when they had to leave, and just the fear of being somewhere unknown. But it also does show the organizations that were there to help them, giving them as much assistance as was possible within the means of the organizations. And the friendships they were able to create, as well as the hostility they encountered from just passerbys. So it's slightly cartoony in, in the artwork, but the characters' environments are well-drawn. And overall, it has a fairly limited color palette, with definitely the focus on the family and the, the events they were dealing with. Book two takes us to Rites of Spring, The Great War and the Birth of the Modern Age. It was written by Madras Ekstein, a white Latvian-Canadian historian. He earned his PhD in history from Oxford University in 1970 and also holds a bachelor's in art and a bachelor's in philosophy. From 1970 to 2010, he worked in the humanities at the University of Toronto Scarborough. He is now Professor Emeritus of History from that university. This book came from my pile, my to-read pile, and it's been in there so long, enough, uh, so long now, I'm not sure if it came from either a bookstore's history book sale or possibly one of my local church's rummage sales. Rites of Springs probes the origins, impact, and aftermath of World War I from the premiere of Stravinsky's ballet, The Rites of Spring, in 1913, to the death of Hitler in 1945. So throughout this work, it's divided into roughly three acts, when they break down as Act 1 being the stage setting, talking about the, the birth of modernism, uh, Act 2, the war, World War One, and Act 3, the legacy of that war. Uh, and this, I've read many books about World War One now, and I found this to have some of the best, most succinct writing I've come across to detail the fighting experiences on the Western Front of World War II. Another superlative of this book is that it takes some time to explore the public feeling and the influences of both the British and the Germans. So it's not just the British side of things saying they're, they're fighting to protect little Belgium. It's also talking about Germany and what the populace felt and how they viewed themselves. The main argument of the work is uh, shift in art as expression of moral commitment to the past to art as provocation and event. And as a, it was a cultural history, again, it explores Europe prior to the outbreak of war, with a lot of it focused on 1913, and again, spends time considering how war was viewed during, during the war by both civilians and military. So we see some from the home front and, some, and a good deal from those fighting. Uh, and it also spends some time looking at the legacy of the war. Uh, it spends a particular amount of time with All Quiet on the Western Front, with its publication and the author of All Quiet on the Western Front's life. Uh, and also spends some time in the 20s after the wars focused on Charles Lindbergh and how he was embraced by the populace as the, the first pilot to successfully cross the Atlantic. So again, uh, for those wishing to explore the early 20th century, look at World War I and its legacy, this would be a very good 
book to start with. Our third book is The Girl Who Stole My Holocaust, a memoir. It is by Noam Chayut, a white Israeli, formerly an army officer. He is now an activist and author. Uh, and this work was translated by Tal Haran, uh, who studied English literature at Tel Aviv University and Hebrew University. For 25 years, she has translated works to and from Hebrew, primarily in the humanities, which this book could conceivably be. Uh, so several years ago, I came across this book on display as a new book and uh, finally had a chance to read it. So it is Hayut's memoir about his journey from eager Zionist conscript of the Israeli army in the front line of Operation Defensive Shield to leading campaigner against the Israeli occupation. So this uh, is told through short chapters, blend of journal with memoir. Uh, in the introduction, Hayut talks about how this began when he was on uh, a vacation after he injured himself. He wasn't able to do as much uh, physical activity, so he found that he would sit in different like tea shops or coffee shops and just write. And there are certain segments of this where that is clear. Uh, but in general, it is about Hayut's struggle coming to terms with the history he was raised with versus what he has learned as an adult. Uh, and those come up with like how hard it can be to empathize with others, particularly when you're stuck inside a political military structure focused on keeping one from thinking or humanizing. And from the, the title, it, how pivotal moments can come and go instantaneously, but the way those pivotal moments, we, we spend a portion of our lives then considering them, thinking about them, figuring out what they meant to us, what they changed. So the moment that gives this book its title from Hayut is maybe 10 seconds from when he got out of a vehicle while serving in the military and seeing a, a young girl in the street who looked at him and then ran away. Like we have that small moment, but he revisits it several times. First, just listing as eventually him realizing that that moment is when he began to shift from believing all the truths he was, the truths in quotation marks there, he was raised with to thinking about them more deeply and wondering why they were told in that way and what part of those events he wasn't told or, or dealt with. So he spends a lot of time talking about his upbringing in Israel and how he was raised learning about the, the blessed Jewish martyrs who were trying to do good and were killed for it. But then as he as as aged became more aware, he questions why it's told that way. So again, not always the best written and could be more clear in places, and I'm not sure if that's Hayut's writing himself or a, a struggle within translation, but a, certainly a work worth reading and considering. When we look at our own personal lives, what things have we taken at full face value that we should question in more depth? And again, when I'm saying question in more depth, look for other sources of information, compare those sources of information, not just take the one source we're coming across as truth, but to spend some time considering the different viewpoints, trying to suss out which we feel is right.
Book four takes us to Guts and Glory, Great American War Movies. It was written by Lawrence H. Swid, S-U-I-D, not sure the pronunciation, couldn't find it readily available, but he is a white American military historian who has appeared on the History Channel, Turner Classic Movies, and CNN. It also features an introduction by Charles Champlin, who was a white American film critic, professor, and writer who had worked for Life and Time magazine, as well as hosting the PBS show Film Odyssey. I got this one from my father, and goodness knows where he came across it. But Guts and Glory is an exploration of American war films from the early days of film to the end of the Vietnam War. Special focus is on how the armed forces assisted, or chose not to, with the production of the films. And the particular volume I was reading ended just before the release of Apocalypse Now. So looking through it, it definitely read like a labor of love for the author. Uh, In the introduction and the sources, the book was based in part on many, many interviews. Also showed for this, this, I guess, genre of film now, the war film, uh, talked about the armed services awareness of the recruiting effect these films could have on the public, as well as the, the receipt of that or the reaction to the film shaping public perception of the armed for- forces as they are portrayed in film. So a constant, in for those directors then and the military, it was a constant battle between realism versus entertainment or the director's vision. So it talks about the, the process some of these films went through where they'd submit a script seeking military help and how some of them were very reliant on the armed forces to be able to portray it accurately without drastic expense and how some movies wound up failing to be able to work with the armed forces because they didn't meet the codes the armed forces didn't necessarily like the direction the producer was going various reasons i'd not heard of many of these films but some of them i do remember catching as as a child on tv or even more recently visiting myself or having watched in college as part of American studies. But uh, many of them sounded interesting, and others sounded like they they were in the vein of Tom Brokaw's The Greatest, Gele- uh, Greatest Generation, celebrating those of World War II. It also talked about the perception of the military, where before Korea, as far as the public was concerned, America had never lost a war and how that perception changed uh, throughout the 50s and then into the 60s and 70s. The main thing I found myself reading, uh, thinking while reading this book, is I wonder what this author would have to say about films such as Saving Private Ryan, or even more recently, Jarhead. Uh, And in the preparation for the notes of this, I found an expanded edition with a slightly different title, which I unfortunately didn't note down, was uh, released in 2002. So at least Saving Private Ryan got some some explanation here, as well as I'm sure the receipt or reception of Apocalypse Now. So if you're curious of this, uh, I'd certainly try to find the revised version. But any anyone handy with the library can know, look it up by the author. I'll try and add the full title in the show notes. So if you're curious, you can always check those while you're listening or after. <laughs> And already, we're on our last book. So that one is Roadside Picnic by Arkady and Boris Strutgotsky. 
who were white Soviet Russian science fiction writers who worked collaboratively for much of their career. This is their best known work, and it was made into the film Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky, released in 1979. It has been very influential uh, and has won several awards, including a nomination for the second place prize of the John W. Campbell Award for Best Science Fiction Novel of 1978. The version I read also had an introduction or foreword by Ursula K. Le Guin, who was a white American author who published 22 novels, 11 volumes of short stories, four collections of essays, 12 books for children, six volumes of poetry, and four of translation. And she has received, had received many awards, Hugo, Nebula, National Book Award, Penn, Malamud, etc. And the version I read uh, was translated by Olona Boromashenko, who was who is a white Ukrainian-Canadian mathematician who attended graduate school of mathematics at Stanford University and currently works at the University of Texas at Austin as a math lecturer. She had, has been a fan of the Strugatsky's fiction ever since childhood and started translating Roadside Picnic as a hobby. So I came across this book thanks to uh, a recommend, well, the selection of it from the book club I'm an actual member of. So thank you for the recommendation there. Uh, and Roadside Picnic is focused on Red Schuhart, a stalker, one of those young rebels who are compelled in spite of extreme danger to venture illegally into the zone to collect the mysterious artifacts that the alien visitors left scattered around. His life is dominated by the place and the thriving black market in the alien products. So in this book, aliens came to Earth for a whole two days and left. Uh, around the, the whole Earth, they landed in six areas, and these areas are called zones, as we got in the book description. And they have been cordoned off to some degree, and some brave the mysteries and dangers for both the thrill and the money. So and one, one of those is Red Shuhart. There are others we meet in the book, but they deal with the hazards that no one's ever seen before in a landscape that has been radically changed. So Shuhart talks us through some of his missions or journeys through the zones talking about how he has to be prepared to look smell and just feel how it's going to be different because there might be gravity anomalies that crush things there might be mysterious slime that eats away at your flesh or there might even just be little webs of things that can cause cardiac arrest as with other science fiction books that ask us to look at the outside the aliens from outside and their effect on humanity. So what is the greatest threat to humanity? As you often see, it's humans. And this is really a stark world. So the town we're, we're greeted is depressed but still functioning. So people keep moving away, but some remain. Uh, the bars seem to be lively. There is scientific and governmental interest in this, but there are people wondering, do they stay? Do they move on? What happens to their family? Will what the aliens left behind cause genetic changes? So through Shuhat's life, we see him as a young man, middle-aged, and then on, his, on a later mission. So we get to see him through several different snapshots throughout his life. And much of his life and considerations is, should he work within the system and go into the zone as a paid employee, or should he strike out on his own? to get the most money for him and his family.
And speaking of family, now we're at our reading soon section. So the two books I'm hoping to read over this next two-week period start with The Cold Millions by Jess Walter. And again, family is the theme. And this book is about two adventure-seeking brothers, the enemies who threaten them and the women who reveal to them an unjust world on the brink of upheaval. So this is a book that came out in 2020. So we'll, we'll talk about that hopefully more next episode. And our other featured reading soon book is Seasons of Migration to the North by Tayeb Salih. Salih, sorry. Uh, after years of study in Europe, the young narrator returns to his village along the Nile in the Sudan. It is the 1960s, and he is eager to make a contribution to the new post-colonial life of his country. Back home, he discovers a stranger among the familiar faces of childhood, the enigmatic Mustafa Said. Mustafa takes the young man into his confidence telling him the story of his own years in London, of his brilliant career as an economist, and of the series of fraught and deadly relationships with European women that led to a terrible public reckoning and his return to his native land. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.